Yeah, hey, Bene. Good morning, my relatives. It is uh, Tuesday, February 27th, and I'm sitting here with my second cup of coffee. And I'm grateful that you can join me this morning. Uh, I see there's already a few people online. It's good to have you here. I have not done a second cup of coffee in almost a week. Um, I was traveling last week with my daughter. I went to, uh, we flew back from here, D.C. area, back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was able to spend some time with my parents. But we also did something uh, that my daughter really wanted to do, which is she wanted to learn how to downhill ski. And because <laughs> we're living, I grew up in, in New Mexico, uh, right near the Rocky Mountains in the Southwest, where we actually have mountains there. And here on the East Coast, I'm sorry, they don't have mountains. There's no mountains here on the East Coast. I mean, they call things mountains, but they're really not mountains. And so I, when my daughter said she wants to learn how to ski, I'm like, I, we have to learn how to do this uh, in a real mountain. And so I told her I would take her back to with me when I went to go visit my parents. I tried to visit them every two or three months, or three or four months, and I would take her back, and we would um, we would go skiing there. And so we did. We went skiing at Purgatory, which is a small ski resort just north of Durango, Colorado. And I'm going to show you. I've shared a few photos of this on my social media, but this was one of the photos we took at the top of the mountain. You can see just a gorgeous, gorgeous day. And then uh, this is my daughter and I, as we skied up the mountain, we spent the morning on the beginner slope, kind of showing her how to fall, how to get back up again, how to snow plow and all that kind of stuff. And then we went up the mountain later in the afternoon and had a really good time. And on the way home, we were driving the next day and we were driving from Shiprock, New Mexico, back to my parents' place near Gallup. And we had to stop and take just a beautiful picture of the Shiprock. Um, which is right there. So it was it was a really nice trip. And one of the reasons I haven't done a second cup of coffee in a few days or in almost a week is because I uh, didn't take my computer with me. And that was actually intentional. I, I left it home. Now, if you most of you may not know this, but because I've been working as a consultant, for almost two decades now. I haven't had a normal nine-to-five job in a long time, and then I've been doing writing and social media and the speaking that I do. I almost always take my computer everywhere I go. Everywhere I take my computer with me. Um, it's how I work. It's how I get information. I, I always travel with my computer. And this is literally one of the first times in I don't even know how many years that I left the house for more than 24 hours without taking my computer with me. And it was amazing. <laughs> I, I loved it. I couldn't work. And so I was able to focus on time with my daughter. I was able to focus on time with my, my family. I was able to just be fully present without, even though I felt sometimes like, oh, I should be working. I couldn't work. I did not bring my computer with me. And what was surprising is because I'm self-employed and I work from home, right? There's a very fuzzy line between my work life and my personal life. And it gets blurred very quickly. As a result, it can be difficult to rest um, and to just really kind of be away from work. And I came back from this trip to New Mexico feeling the most rejuvenated I felt in a very long time. Not like I wasn't rested beforehand, but felt like my brain had disengaged from work long enough where when I came back, I was ready to fully re-engage with stuff I want to work on and things I want to do. 
And yeah, it was an amazing experience. So definitely, uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing that more uh, in the very near future. It's just learning how to leave my computer at home and make sure that I'm able to take a break uh, and get some rest that I need. Um, so I see there's a few who's online with me here. Let's see who's joined me. Uh, let me check out the chat. Uh, Jermaine, Yat Ebene, thanks for joining this morning. George and Steve, Yat Ebene, thank you all for being a part of this second cup of coffee, sitting down with me for a few moments to talk about the things going on in our world and just some things that are worth discussing. Um, I want to start by acknowledging, like I always do, that I'm speaking to you from Piscataway lands, and I want to honor the Piscataway as the hosts of the land where I'm living. I want to thank them for their stewardship of these lands. It's always very humbling to remind myself, um, and I do it frequently, that I'm, I'm not living in Washington, D.C. I'm living on Piscataway lands, and the Piscataway are still here. And I don't want to ever forget that. So I shout my Piscataway relatives. Thank you for your stewardship of these lands. Um, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that last night, and this was on Twitter. I'm going to call it Twitter because even though Elon Musk is adamant his, uh, his site is called X, the URL is still Twitter. <laughs> and so I'm going to just keep calling it Twitter. So I, I posted on Twitter last night something that I post fairly regularly, um, meaning once or twice a year, maybe every eight to 12 months or so. I usually end up posting this for the past several years, which is when I just like to remind people that white people are not superior. And I tweeted that out last night, and it's been getting not a ton of engagement. I don't engage much on, on Twitter as much anymore, um, and but it's still a place where I like to put out a few more provocative things. Um, but I, I post this for a reason. And I don't, I don't post the statement, white people are not superior, as a way to bash white people. Right. That's not what I'm trying to do. It sounds like I'm bashing white people and white people actually get offended when I point out that they're not superior. But I pointed out really to acknowledge that we live in a world that regularly affirms that white people are superior, are superior or the lie that white people are superior, I should say, and that they live by a different set of rules than most of us. And it's so frequent and common that we don't even think about it near as much anymore, right? I mean, if you're a person of color or if you're a woman and you see what is happening to Donald Trump legally, and I know, I know the Democratic Party is going to say, yes, we're holding him accountable. We have him in court and he's doing all these things, right? And, and okay, you are. But all of us know, right, we are, we are not unaware that were Barack Obama to do something like Donald Trump did, or were a, a woman who ran for president to do something like Donald Trump did or is doing, right, they would be in jail so unbelievably quickly by both parties, right? It wouldn't even be a partisan issue if Barack Obama did something even remotely resembling what Donald Trump did on January 6th 
or with his businesses and the way he leveraged his businesses while he was in office and so on and so forth, right? If, if Barack Obama even did something remotely close to that, he would be imprisoned so quickly by a bipartisan, almost unanimous vote. And we're very aware of that. And yet Donald Trump, right, is, is a, a, he's still a free man, and B, he is continuing to be adamant. I mean, the Republican Party unbelievably is on the verge of putting him back as their nominee. And it, it, his, his, the fact that he is walking free today and running for president at the same time after what he's done is very clear evidence that there is a completely different set of rules for white people than there are for the rest of us. A completely different set of rules. And so every few months, I feel the urge to post just a reminder that white people are not superior. You're not. You're not better. You're not different. You're not special. You're not elevated, right? You're, even though society tells you you are, that is an absolute lie. You are not superior, white people. And because the Supreme Court doesn't want to state that, because our politicians don't want to say that, because the media doesn't want to state that, I'm going to just po post out a reminder every now and then. I know it's going to offend some of you, but it's the truth. You're not superior. You're people, just like the rest of us. So while it's important to say Black Lives Matter, it's important to say Native Lives Matter, it's important to say LGBTQ and other marginalized people's lives matter, that is important. It's important to say, yes, we are not inferior. We are more elevated than we are told by the systemic systems around us. And it's important to say that. But just like we have to lift up the marginalized, we have to lower those who think they're superior, those who are constantly told they're superior. So we have to remind them, white people, you're not superior. So that's what I do. And I always get a little bit of pushback because of that, but it's something important to remember and important to remind people um, that, yeah, that is, that's something we just have to keep in the front of our, it's not just about elevating people of color and marginalized people. It's we have to lower, we have to lower white people. In that vein, there's a story that I read. This was a few days ago. It was on the 22nd. It was uh, while I was traveling, and it was in the Arizona uh, Central, which is their online newspaper or news site in Arizona. And first, I'm going to share with you a Twitter account because the, the, the article in the Arizona Central was from about this Twitter video. Um, and the, the Twitter account was from Mike Leslie, who I think is a, a sports reporter out of Dallas. And he tweeted a video of, he said, as Kevin Durant came out onto the floor for pregame warmups, a Mavericks fan hollered out an explicative at him. Donald turned, or Donald, Durant turned around and engaged in an extended conversation with the fans, which eventually led to AAC security to tell them they had to leave. Durant noticed that and came back over to tell security not to kick them out. And so there's a video on Twitter posted by Mike Leslie that shows the bulk of that interaction. AZ Central went back and interviewed Durant 
and got a story and got the, the, the further story of what was going on in that video. And I'm going to post that story here. And this title of the story is Real Human Beings 2. Sons Kevin Durant didn't have fans kicked out of game for pregame insult. And basically, apparently what happened is as Kevin Durant was coming out of the locker room to go on to the court for pregame warm-up, someone yelled, uh, two Maverick fans there yelled an explicative at him as he walked past them. And he turned around and began to talk to them. And again, security came over, and when Durant left, they were going to kick them out. And Durant came back and said, no, don't kick them out. Let them stay and watch the game. And when they interviewed Durant, he basically said, right, I get it. They, they, they see us on the court. They see us separate from them. And they see us almost as, and by they, I mean fans right? Not just these two people who yelled at him, but fans see the players as kind of like they're animals in a zoo and they're there for our entertainment. They're there for our, for our indulgences and so on and so forth. And so we say things, we yell things during the games that we would never say to our, most of us wouldn't say to someone face to face in person. And I'm sure Kevin and most sports figures and other uh, people who who have fame, they experience this frequently where people yell at them and, and speak to them in a way that they would never speak to their neighbor or to someone else they met on the street. And Durant, to handle that, turned around and talked to them. And when asked why he did that, he said, because they, they think that we're just this thing there for their entertainment. We're basically animals in a zoo. And I wanted to help them to make the connection that we're human just like they are. And at the end of that interview um, on AZ Central, Durant said, and I'm going to quote this, he said, I get it, Durant said. I know the people want to pet the animals in the zoo, get close to the animals in the zoo, but once they get close, they realize we're your human beings too. So you should treat us like that. I could have had them kicked out. Nah, don't put that on me. They just called me an explicative. They didn't harm me. They didn't try to harm me physically. Let them stay and give them something to think about going forward. Right? So had Durant pulled his authority, he absolutely could have had the fans kicked out for the way they treated him verbally. He could have done that. He could have let security continue to throw them out. And then they would have gone home angry and bitter at the fact that this entitled athlete had them removed from the game just because they were yelling something at them and they didn't mean it anyway and didn't he know that this was just part of the sport and blah, blah, blah. And it would have just increased this divide between the two of them where they would have gone home with their story and Durant would have said it just had been another day in the office, unfortunately, where he gets treated and dehumanized by people who are around them. And it would have just furthered the divide. But by turning around and talking to them, and then by not allowing security or telling security not to kick them out, Duran actually closed the divide. Because now these fans absolutely had to understand that they were interacting with another human being with a man 
and they couldn't just go home and scream about how how they were mistreated by and how they were they were victims of this and blah 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 and durant actually helped humanize himself and hopefully other members of the nba and other athletes to these fans to say hey let's uh, you, yes you're here we're entertaining you you're paying money to be here we understand this is part of the the way it works but please do not forget we are still human and so by doing it the way he did it, he actually gave them something to think about. <laughs> I love that, right? I love that. And I think for us watching this from the outside, right, we're viewing this thing on social media. And again, what social media does is it gives us this sense of indignation. Oh, we see this video. We see these people. We see, right, the, who they are and the way they're behaving. And we're like, oh, this is so horrible. And now we the public and social media dehumanize them and we do the very opposite to them what Kevin Durant did to them, which is he treated them respectfully as fellow human beings. And so when we watch this video, we have to be very careful, even if we repost about it, that we don't do the very opposite of what Kevin so clearly modeled for us, which is, yes, even though hurtful things get said, even though behavior is bad, so on and so forth, let's remember we're all human together and let's engage with one another respectfully as fellow human beings. So Kevin Durant, my hat's off to you. Thank you. My hat, I don't have a hat. My glasses are off to you. Thank you, Kevin Durant, for that incredible example of not only demanding that people treat you as a human, but in reaction to being mistreated by them, you turn around and completely treat them also as human. I applaud that. Thank you, Kevin, for that incredible lesson that you gave us um, in the way that you treated those two fans. And again, this, this is why... Um, well, I won't go in. I already said the things I said about that. So anyway, the other thing I wanted to talk about today, and there's another story I wanted to address. And if you're following the, the presidential politics, um, you'll know that this last weekend was um, the South Carolina primary and Nikki Haley is still running against Donald Trump in the primary. And she was the governor of South Carolina and she lost um, by a fairly large margin. I think she got 40% of the vote or something like that. Donald got over 50%. Um, and she had, she got fairly, it was a fairly major loss. She also lost in a more liberal state like New Hampshire and so things are not looking good for her. But she's adamant that she's going to stay in the race. She's adamant she's going to continue running. And I encourage you to read this article because it actually it, it highlights and I think it, it shows why Nikki Haley is doing what she's doing. And the article is in Political is titled Hidden in Trump's Big South Carolina Win, a not so small problem for him in November. 
And according to this article in, in Political, it says, and I'm going to just read a few sentences from here, it says, Trump lost moderate and liberal voters to Haley by a wide margin, according to exit polls, and according to the AP votecast. A bit over one in five GOP primary voters said they would not vote for Trump in November if he was the party's nominee. Perhaps the clearest illustration of this dynamic came in the city of Charleston, where Haley racked up more than 80% of the vote in some precincts. Haley saw Trump's soft underbelly and underscored it in her remarks, telling supporters he drives people away. Now, I'm not a Republican, and I would not vote for Nikki Haley in a presidential general election but I'm absolutely rooting for her in the Republican primary. I think Donald Trump, just like I think Joe Biden, absolutely needs a viable opponent in the primaries. And I am grateful that Haley, Nikki Haley, is making the Republican Party not just give a, 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 an easy walk to the nomination, but she's making people choose and she's exposing both some of Trump's weaknesses as well as making her party, forcing her party to make a decision. The, the Democrats aren't doing that. And there probably is just as much um, division caused by Biden and the Democratic Party as there's Trump and the Republican Party because when you get to his age, you get to the way he's so moderate, you get to all the things he's doing with the support of Israel and all the stuff that's going on, right? There's a lot of things that are the Democratic Party is attempting to just sweep under the rug as they kind of march President Biden to the Democratic nomination. And I think the Democrats, just like the Republicans, need a very clear primary this year, because we should not give these nominations, whether it's to Donald Trump on the right or Joe Biden on the left, we should not hand either of these men an assumed nomination of their respective parties. When you're over 80 years old, over 75 years old, when you are as divisive as Trump or as moderate as Biden, you have to earn your party's nomination, not just assume it. Joe Biden, you are an old man. I'm not being ageist. You are an old man, 82 years old. Donald Trump, you are also an old man. You need to demonstrate to us that you're up to the task of being president. It's insulting that both of these men are just assuming that they are the presumptive nominees of their parties. And I wish the Democrats would do the very same thing the Republicans are doing. And it's, it, it, it's unfortunate that the Democratic Party does not have the courage to challenge Joe Biden the way the Republicans are trying to challenge Donald Trump. So I'm going to continue watching this race. Um, I saw the other day that it looked like, uh, um, um, oh, why is his name? <laughs> What's his name? Uh, Cornell West uh, is now on the ballot in South Carolina, it looks like. 
And so uh, he's continuing to get some support. Again, uh, he is running primarily on the left. And so he is trying to be an alternative to Donald, to Joe Biden. I think he would be more effective if he ran as a Democrat instead of just as an independent, because he's really not an independent. He's much more of, of, a, of a left-leaning, he's much more of a Democrat than he is independent, even though he doesn't like the Democratic Party. But he is a absolutely a liberal candidate. Um, and he's not going to take many votes from the right. And so anyway, so I'm I I I'm glad to see that he's on the ballot in uh, South Carolina, and I hope he gets on the more ballots. I think we have to have more choice and more options in the general election instead of just these two old white men from the upper echelons of the 1%. So anyway, those are some of the things I've been thinking about these past few days. Uh, I'm very excited to be back from my trip, and uh, I've been very busy this past week, and I had a, an event here in New Mexico, or here in D.C. It was great. It was literally, it was at a house just up the block from me. It was a group from Detroit who came into town, and they had read my book, and they asked if I would come and do kind of a Q&A and a, a longer discussion with their cohort. They were in town doing some stuff in D.C., and so I met with them for about two and a half hours over the weekend, um, and I've been doing a lot of things on my Patreon. So if you like what I'm doing here, if you like my joining me for a second cup of coffee and you want to find a way to take the conversation deeper, um, I welcome you to follow me on Patreon. You can follow me for free on Patreon and see the stuff that I'm posting there. And then you can subscribe at any point to any of the tiers to engage with the content I put up there. Um, over the over the, la the last week, I've posted uh, my second half of kind of my thoughts about the writing and publishing process and lessons I've learned as I've written and published my first book with On Selling Truths. Um, just this weekend, I shared some thoughts on my the book I'm writing right now on decolonizing faith. And it actually came from the Q&A I did with the Detroit group where they brought up a question at the end of our session about sin. And it really, it, it was it was a question I've never gotten before, which is why I love these kind of Q&As. And it was, I had never got that question before. And I realized, oh, yeah, I have to really think through that. And so I actually shared that as my, my presentation for February for the Decolonizing Faith tier. And so that's posted up on my Patreon if you want to read that or listen to that, um, both the audio and the video version of it. And then tonight um, on, on Tuesday evening uh, at 8 p.m., um, Eastern time, I will be doing my Q&A here on, on my Patreon. And you can join me. If you join the Ask Questions tier, you can join me for a Q&A this evening. If you've read my book on something true, or you've watched a video of mine, or you've heard me speak about things, or you even want to just go deeper in something I said over one of my cups of coffee, that is a great place to just take the conversation a little bit deeper. So anyway, the, the best way to engage with me at a more deep level um, is to follow me on Patreon. It's also a great way to support my work. Um, I work very hard not to monetize most of my social media, even though you'll see ads on my YouTube videos. I didn't monetize them, so I'm not making money off of that. I do that so advertisers have as little influence as possible over what I say. And I like to keep my voice as uh, kind of independent as I possibly can. Um, I'm going to continue to share this link to my where you can buy copies of Unsettling Truths, both individual signed copies as well as the 10 book book study special. And I'm doing several of these Q&As with the book study special a month. And I love them. I did another one just the other night. 
and I loved it. I love the conversations we have during these Q and A's. There, everyone is very different. They all have much different, a variety of questions, and it's some of the funnest things I do on a regular basis. Is these book study Q and A's. So if you, even if you've read on Selling Truths, and you want to share it with some of your friends, buying the ten book special, you'll get ten signed copies of my book. Um, and you will get a 45-minute virtual Q&A with me that you can schedule up to a year later after you make the purchase, um, whenever you would like in the next year that aligns with my schedule. And it's just a great way to, to take the conversation a little bit deeper. Um, the last thing I want to talk about today, and as you know, this is Black History Month. Um, and I talked about I was going to do some reading for Black History Month and talk about the books that I'm going to read or the book that I'm reading. And the book I'm reading is The Rebellious Life of Miss Rosa, Mrs. Rosa Parks. And I was hoping to be able to have a deeper discussion about this book um, either today or on, two, on Thursday of this week over my second cup of coffee. But I hate to tell you I'm not going to be ready for it. And the reason I'm not going to be ready for it is because I'm reading the book, but it's making me very angry. And so reading the book is like, it's a slow process because I'm just digesting a lot of it. Um, just to give you a sense of, of what the book deals with. And most people, they know Rosa Parks as the woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus, which led to a bus boycott, which led to a lot of change in our nation's Jim Crow laws and things like that. And what this book is essentially saying is that when you reduce Rosa Parks' work to merely being too tired to get up for a white person to give him their seat, her seat on a bus, you are basically devaluing her lifelong work and struggle against white supremacy and systemic racism, and you are merely reducing her to an icon that now is palatable to white America. And the book is about how her life was so much more than just that moment on the bus. And so reading it, 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 it literally makes me livid, right? When I see the way our nation, white America, takes a very strong and powerful voice like Rosa Parks, reduces them to a single mere act that makes it look, and this is the point the book is making, it makes it look like this kind of change is easy right? And she's actually helping white America and working with white America. And right, they, they can now celebrate this. And it's like, no, if you look at her life in context, her life was a constant struggle. It was a rebellious life against these systems. And she received pushback and had hardship the entire time going forward. And, and when white America reduces her life and her struggle down to a single moment, it devalues her and it devalues what she does, and it makes her palatable now to the general public. I'm going to have a lot more to say about this book, but um, I, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to, to finish it by this Thursday before the end of the month. And so I'm hoping next week to be able to, to take the, the conversation a bit deeper. 
And so if you haven't read the book, I invite you to read it. Um, there's audible versions out there. You can buy it from the publisher. You can buy it anywhere else books are sold. There's even a movie made out of this book, um, which uh, I, I'm trying to read the book before I watch the movie. But yeah, so I'm my work in Black History Month was to read this book and I'm working my way through it, but I'm not going to finish it in time to have the discussion about it in February. So we'll have that discussion earlier in March. Anyway, my relatives, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, uh, I hope you all, I hope your cup of coffee is just as good as mine is. Um, and uh, I look forward to having more discussion with you later this week. You can join me on Patreon tonight over the Q&A. Um, and uh, yeah, walk in beauty, my relatives. And may we all learn how to walk in this beauty together. Hakonet.